Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. You know, New York legalized adult use cannabis back in March of, 19, of 2021. Now, two years later, the program is plagued with lawsuits and holdups and licenses, inadvertently leading to a proliferation of the illicit market. My guest today was the general counsel and VP of Industry Affairs at Lantern, an e-commerce marketplace that facilitated the home delivery of cannabis in states like Massachusetts, Colorado, and Michigan. And prior to that, she was the director of government affairs for Acreage Holdings and served as the chair of the New York Medical Cannabis Industry Association. Today, she specializes as a cannabis regulatory attorney and the go-to expert for cannabis industry players who need help navigating this legal minefield in New York and throughout the Northeast. In 2022, she received the City and State Above and Beyond Award for a working cannabis policy that was named to Politico's Cannabis Power Player List. Katie Neer, welcome and thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blown with Montel today. Thanks, Montel. I'm so excited to be here with you today and talk about New York. I'm so excited to have you and let's dig right in. But before we start talking about the New York process, let's talk a little about you. Tell me a little bit about your background first. You are a native of New York. You went to school and college um, in New York State, did you not? I did. Born, born and raised in New York, in upstate New York, right outside of Syracuse. I went to college at SUNY Albany where I played lacrosse. So shout out to the, to the Great Danes if any are yeah. listening to your show. And shout out to lacrosse. Not not a lot of people know about it these days, but great sport. I went to. I grew up on the East Coast, so I'm very well familiar. Yeah, Maryland, yeah. Maryland. No one does lacrosse like Maryland, except maybe Syracuse. Well, you know, Naval Academy plays it pretty well too. I played a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yep, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I, I was not that adventurous. I really stayed stayed in the state that I knew and loved, and I. Uh, coming out of law school, got a job in the governor's office, um, which followed a series of different internships or jobs in and around government um, when I was at SUNY Albany. And so I just, I knew from an early age in my career that I had that kind of political policy bug. And so I've really built a career in and around government and work with a variety of clients, uh, primarily in the cannabis space, to help them navigate that. But I mean, you get out of college, you go to work at the governor's office. I'm sure you were working in areas that had nothing to do with cannabis. When did the light bulb go off? When did you say, hmm, I think I'm going to work in cannabis? How did that happen? Yeah, I definitely didn't go to law school thinking I was going to be a cannabis lawyer. I should say I've always been a consumer of cannabis. Um, and I do like to recognize that I am a white woman who grew up in a suburb outside of Syracuse. For, for me and my cohort, cannabis effectively was legal, right? We used without consequence. And later when I got into the cannabis industry and started working with a lot of advocates, a lot of elected officials, different stakeholders, um, working on legalization and decriminalization, I was... I became well-educated on the concept of social equity and the data and stats around the disproportionate enforcement of prohibition of cannabis. Um, but I didn't enter 
kind of the professional industry here until much later in my career. I had left the governor's office. I had there primarily worked on gaming issues, gambling issues, and general government things. So tax and finance, insurance, um, banking, regulatory matters, things like that. And then I was in private practice at a law firm. That's where I got my first cannabis client. It was Acreage Holdings, the company I then joined in-house. And they were one of um, 10 operators licensed in New York State in the medical program, which really caught my attention uh, because I did have a good friend and mentor who did get diagnosed with stage four cancer early in life and unfortunately passed away. But watching him try to navigate that medical cannabis program in New York caught my attention. And what year was this? What year were you talking about? Um, I got my, I got this cannabis client in 2017, 2018 my friend. I watched my friend navigate that New York state medical cannabis program, like 2015 until 2019, until he unfortunately passed away. Crazy. And I, um, I've been an advocate for cannabis now for well over 20 years. And I literally started my, my advocacy. If you go back, um, former district attorney of, uh, Manhattan, Morgenthau literally gave me a get out of jail pass uh, because I was doing some advocacy for cannabis back in 2001 and actually literally ran through, you know, um, the legislature back there, helping them um, navigate and try to write some of the legislation that eventually finally passed, but it was completely different from the one that we originally worked on way back then. Um, you know, New York has come a long way, but right now it's pretty much considered a hot mess when it comes to the implementation of the adult use market. Um, can you give us like an overview of, of the adult use regulations in New York and some of the problems with the rollout? Absolutely. So no question that New York is catching a lot of criticism and a lot of heat right now with this rollout but I do want to give them some grace. They're trying to do this in a, in a way that's very different than we've seen any other state roll out their adult use market. And so uh, some of the criticism is fair. Some of it is not. And so I'll say right up front, a lot of my clients are the existing medical operators, um, many of whom are multi-state operators, not all of them. But traditionally, when a state has a medical program and turns on adult use, getting to market quickly is a top priority because they want to capture the illicit market and start to convert consumers and operators to the regulated channel. They want to maximize the tax revenue being brought into the state. And they don't want an illicit market to kind of pop up and flourish in between legalizing and rolling out uh, licenses. But that's really kind of an oxymoron for the state of New York because there's been an illicit market in the state of New York for over 20 years and a robust one for over 20 years. I mean, I can remember, you know, how I've been living in New York for now six years, and back before I even left, you could have delivery at your door. Um, so that illicit market has been a robust, has been, um, and I, even though, you know, there's going to be the legal market, I think it's going to be years before the legal market even comes close to the amount of revenue being generated in the illicit, illicit market. I mean, when we look back in 2021, what I think it was close to $25 billion of cannabis was sold nationwide. And we know that was in the legal market, but there was close to $75 billion worth of cannabis sold across this country in the dark and gray and black markets. And when you look at 
New York, I would tell you that it's probably, you know, more like five to one than it is three to one. I completely agree. And and I when I say illicit market, I'm talking right now, I'm talking about the pop-up shops you see absolutely everywhere, right? So all over New York City, it's also an upstate issue. Then I then I like to make a distinction between that illicit market that's really popped up and completely taken advantage of this gap between legalization and implementation versus the legacy market, which to your point is is probably the one of the oldest, most sophisticated, most successful markets uh, in the country, if not the most. And so converting that those those legacy operators and those consumers is going to be critical to success. And that's not happened yet. Uh, and partly in part because OCM did not when I say OCM, that's Office of Canvas Management for anyone who's not in New York, they did not want to launch the program with the medical operators. So with the multi-state operators, they wanted the first market mover advantage to go to small and mid-size New York businesses, ideally social equity owned or justice involved owned businesses. And so that's what they've been focusing on the last two and a half years approaching three years. And they they have had some success there. And there are some some good stories to tell. But if you do a snapshot of where we are today, there's 27 dispensaries open. That's not nearly enough. There's 280-ish uh, conditionally licensed growers and processors. And that is enough, right? But then we don't have the retail to meet and move that supply. And so we have no shortage of issues right now and almost, you know, approaching the three year anniversary of an enactment, though those medical operators aren't in yet. And so they're getting antsy and they're getting impatient and are one of the more vocal criticizers of this state and this implementation process. But I think uh, New York's in the middle of a open application window right now. It will close in about a month on December 18th then that agency will focus on getting licenses out the door in Q1. And I'm hopeful we start to see a lot of businesses get up and running by the second half of next year. And that market conversion I was speaking of, hopefully will start to happen. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be, uh, that's from your, your lips to God's ears, because I'm, I'm just thinking, first off, the illicit market in New York is so deep. I mean, it goes down deeper than the subway in New York. And, you know, I mean, it's going to be really hard to figure out how to even blunt it, so to speak. But, I mean, it's going to be kind of tough to to get a get a piece of that that industry's business. I mean, I think so many people have been relying on, you know, the illicit market so much that I just don't understand how the state flips that over. Yeah, it's going to it's going to be a huge challenge. And again, it's a very sophisticated existing market. And uh, eventually consumers will convert, I think, and, op and operators, I think legacy operators will convert to those regulated opportunities if they make sense, right? If they make business sense. And that's, that's another issue. These regs. Well, after you said if they make sense, I mean, what, it, it, what's the tax, uh, state tax implications on top of cannabis being sold in the legal market there? Absolutely. So the taxes in New York aren't the 
the greatest news. So the point of sale excise tax is 14%, which may not, yeah, it's steep. It's not the steepest in the country, but it's, it's steep. What's really, I think, going to drive up prices here in New York is the distribution tax. So there's a potency tax by product form and potency on the distribution side between your wholesalers and your retailers. And of course, that's flowing through to that price you see at the register, plus that 14% tax. And so I do think the high prices are going to be a barrier to, to market conversion. And I'm hopeful over time, the, the legislature will reduce that tax. And, and New York State's also, I mean, you, you have built into your legislature or built into your regulations. Is there going to be on-site consumption or will there be you know, social consumption licenses that are separate from the other kind of licenses? Is that, I've heard so many rumors. What's going to happen? Yeah. So in New York, there is a consumption lounge license, if you will. You can stack it with a retail license um, or a delivery license. And um, I'm excited. That's one of the things I'm really, really excited about to get implemented here in New York. I think consumption lounges hopefully can be very successful. And this is one of the few states where they included that in their uh, enacting law and in this uh, regulation that was recently adopted a few months ago, kind of from the inception, from rollout. A lot of other states add consumption lounges down the line after they've implemented the program already. It's so strange. I was in New York a couple of weeks back and I remember I'm telling you, it seems like there's a consumption lounge on every street corner. I'm sorry. I mean, just, you know, you walk around and, and for me, now other people that I was with, I had some people, hey, I smell that pot everywhere. I was like, so it's a good thing. What's the problem? But for others, it seems to be something that already got those who want to complain already just complaining at the top of their lungs, right? Yeah, there's plenty of consumption lounges already open and operating in the, the city. Consumption lounges walking right down the street. Yeah, <laughs> That's what I'm yeah. Talking about. yeah right? oh yeah, everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. Look, on one hand, I think that's good, right? That's good for the destigmatization of the plant and to kind of normalize it uh, and for your consumer education. On the other hand, for some people, that really bothers them and it's uh, it's a negative. But that's the reality in New York. I don't think there's any putting that genie back in the bottle. I don't think that genie will ever go back in the bottle. Like I said, I, I, I was, I was in this last visit to the city, I was literally in Times Square, uh, close to Times Square, and um, I went as far, you know, up. Uh, I was in Central Park for a minute, and I was down by Battery Park, and I just remember, I, I, I had a, just a subtle little smile every time I got out of the car. It's like. I don't even need to take it, man. Because <laughs> somebody just walked by. Thank you very much. You know, it's like that's how much it seems to be everywhere. Oh, it's everywhere. I have the same reaction when I'm down in the city and I smell it. I, I take a deep breath and I'm like, hey, yeah. that's a good thing. That's, that's a, good a good thing. thing. Come on, give me a freebie. Um, <laughs> but now I understand that there have been several veterans groups that have sued the state recently. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and what that litigation was all about and what it means for New York State when it comes to licensing going forward? Absolutely can. And as a vet yourself, thank you yeah. for your service. Um, thank you. So here in New York, the, the social and economic equity categories for prioritized licensing in the law 
are several different buckets uh, and service disabled veterans is one of those groups of people that should get prioritized license opportunities and reduced licensing fees and access to programming and support to help them run a successful business. And instead of implementing the social and economic equity licensing prioritization that's codified in the law, what New York did was create a conditional licensing program um, called the CARD program for short. And to be eligible for that, you needed to be what they call a justice-involved individual. And the way you were eligible to be justice-involved meant you had a cannabis conviction here in New York and you owned and operated a profitable business for at least two years. It's the second eligibility factor that was really controversial here because it's not in the law. And so they launched that licensing program uh, about a year ago. And everyone else who was in one of those social and economic equity categories, such as service disabled veterans, felt upset about that. So those four veterans did file suit to challenge the conditional adult use retail dispensary rollout, uh, largely because they felt they missed out or are missing out on an opportunity for early licenses or first market mover advantage. And part of it also has to do with the setback requirements around retail stores in New York. The regs do have some, some consequential setbacks, Essentially, you can't be within a thousand feet of another store, and that's at that's measured as the bird flies. And so, there was just a lot of anxiety from various social equity groups that were embedded in the statute, but not included in this justice-involved conditional rollout. That were really kind of upset about it, and and the vets chose to move forward with the litigation. Well, now there are 2,500 plus illegal outlets dispensing cannabis in New York right now. And, and I don't know how many are in Manhattan, but I'm sure that a lot of those are not uh, 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 paying attention to a thousand feet by the, the crow fly, right? Not even close. Not even right. close. I think you you might count almost two dozen stores within that thousand foot radius. And that, well, that would probably just be the straight line. I think if you did that as the bird flies, a uh, thousand foot radius, you could have, gosh, 50 stores plus. In the yeah, those, are, those are 50 stores that are selling legal cannabis. But then how about those that are selling these ridiculous hemp based things and products? I mean, almost every bodega has got something. It's, it's out of control, right? So you've got illicit pop-up shops everywhere. You've got out of state, regulated out of state product finding its way into New York and onto those shelves. Then you've got high potency hemp derived THC products that are outside of, you know, those, those hemp licensed channels that are everywhere. Right. So that's where you might see like the thousand milligram uh, fruit loop or something like that popping up in a bodega. Um, and on top of all of that, you do from, from the litigation that's, that's, gone on, there is an injunction right now on the state further opening more retail outlets. So, I mean, if there, if there was something that could be on fire in New York, it's on fire. And, and how do they think, I mean, how's the state, what are they planning to do to combat these 2,500 plus illegal facilities? 
That's the million dollar question. There was recently uh, Senator Cooney, he's the chair of the, the Senate Cannabis Committee here in New York. He did just host a public hearing with a few other chairs of different committees. And it was supposed to be a hearing about the lack of retail, regulated retail in New York. What it turned out to be a hearing about was this illicit market problem, this enforcement problem. And it was it was a fascinating hearing for that purpose. And, you know, the agency came in and they testified and spoke to the resources that they have or rather the resources that they don't have. Um, and uh, we heard from tax and finance and we heard from city government officials. Uh, and really, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the legislature doesn't try to take this on again uh, next year during the legislative session and beef up the enforcement tools that the agencies have, because to date, it's not working. And to be honest, I don't know if it's a legal issue and with their authority or if it's a resource issue with like bodies and boots on the ground to go do the work. I would bet you it's going to be a little bit, it's a little bit of both, but then also the bodies and boots on the grounds, like at the, at the court level, because you shut a place down, you got to, got to take them somewhere. You got to put them in court, got to let them go through the due process. And we were talking 2,500 places that could be shut down, which ain't going to happen. And for every one that shuts down, there's going to be two more to pop up. So, I mean, you're going to be, revolving door in in courts for the next couple of years before you even get beyond that to say let's implement a program yeah it's it's definitely whack-a-mole issue and it's unfortunate because i i see it have kind of a paralysis effect on potential investment into new york so you know as you know and and many many guests you've had on your show talk about access to capital is like the number one issue when it comes to the emerging market of, you know, the regulated cannabis industry and the limited capital that does exist is right now very hesitant to jump right. in on New York because when you're competing against a store that doesn't charge taxes, that processes payments on credit cards, that's got no marketing and advertising rules that they're adhering to, no setback rules that they're adhering to, they're probably not age gating, right? They're probably not checking IDs. Uh, there's no inventory tracking system. There's, you know, it's just a free for all. Well, do you really want to invest in that in that market? How can you compete? And and uh, is there still a medical program in the state? There is a medical program in the state. It's something I'm super passionate about. Again, a lot of my clients operate within that market. It's not, it's not great. It's, it's a really strict program. The barriers to entry for patients, for practitioners, and for operators are really high. The state is working on lowering those barriers for all those stakeholder groups across the board. But to date, we still only have a little more than 125,000 patients registered in the program. And when you look at the population, which is nearly 20 million people in New York state, that's, that's abysmal. When you look at how many medical dispensaries are open, it's only 40 statewide. So that's one dispensary for every half a million potential patients. That's the, that's the worst in the country. Uh, so we just, we have a really conservative medical program and that's something I do a lot of work on is advocating to try to try to make it more accessible and more affordable for okay potential patients. What are some of the qualifying conditions in New York to get a card? 
So the qualifying conditions in New York are um, were recently expanded. So there, it's anxiety, it's pain, uh, terminal illness, um, PTSD, um, Alzheimer's, and a couple others I'm probably not remembering right now. But there's also, most importantly, a catch-all. So a practitioner can certify a patient for any any ailment he or she deems cannabis to be an effective treatment for. So that's that's game changing. That's a big deal. Absolutely. But now do you think that program will stay in place after they implement the adult use program? That is what I will be working a lot to try to make sure it does survive and and maintain some level of sustainability. I think that's always important for certain types of patients. I think a lot of patients may be able to sort of move to an adult use market once they become familiar and educated on what's best for them. But there will always be some subset of people that I think need to stay in a medical program. And some of the things I'll be lobbying for on behalf of clients to make sure that medical program does not go away are things like making it tax free. So eliminating the excise tax that exists on medical cannabis um, enacting patient reciprocity. So your commuters, your college students, your visitors from out of state, if they're a medical patient in their home state, they'd still be able to visit a dispensary here. Uh, and then of course, we also have a, a really cool idea here in New York to allow the pharmacists that are mandated to be within the medical dispensary uh, to authorize them to recommend and sign a patient up on the spot. So if you're not a registered patient, but you walk into a medical dispensary, you have this interaction with a pharmacist that's that needs to be there. That's a mandate in New York. And if that pharmacist feels medical cannabis would be appropriate for you, you'd be able to sign up and and walk out that day with with some product. Now, you know, it's very, very interesting. Way back in, in early, I'm telling you, I started advocating for cannabis in New York back in 2001. Um, and literally spent many a day up speaking to legislators. And way back then, the very first proposed legislation would have included the same thing that's happening now in Georgia, uh, where they've allowed independent pharmacists to actually dispense cannabis. I happen to have a product line in Georgia. I'm in Massachusetts. I'm in Georgia now. And my, my products are all being approved at the state level as we speak, and hopefully by... Uh, the end of December or January for Q1, I'll be on shelves in not only dispensaries, but I'll be on shelves in, there's over 160 independent pharmacists have signed on to the deal with Botanical Sciences, which is the company that I'm working with down there. Um, so my products will be available in regular or in independent pharmacies in the state. Uh, do you think New York will go in that direction again now that was 2001 was 20 years ago when they started considering that and that was literally one of the things that i think almost got the entire thing passed back then but it of course fell by the wayside um do you think new york state may venture down that path maybe someday i don't know that it will happen anytime soon i think you know new york loves to kind of hold itself out there as one of the most or more progressive states but if you kind of take that down to the micro level and look at how they've approached cannabis policy the last, let's say half decade, it is, it's pretty conservative. It takes time. It really takes time. To your point, you started advocating in New York in 2001. 
I mean, they didn't enact the bill to legalize and decrim in, for adult use until uh, 2021, 20 years. Well, 20 years later. I mean, it's, it's been crazy. I mean, if you, if you had told me back in 2001 that we would be where we are today with cannabis nationwide, I would have laughed in your face. I would have said, are well, you crazy? It'll already be legal. It'll be okay. But it will be adult use and probably, you know, uh, close to 60 or uh, 60 to 70 percent of the states and the medical will be in all 50. And I am blown away that we're sitting here in 2021, 2023, getting ready to 2024. And we are at the place that we are. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I, you know, I should know that, you know, I, I should be used to this, I should say, because I lobby and I'm in and around government and trying to move government to do things, but it just takes so much longer than you would think, especially on this issue. So, you know, to, to us, to people who are consumers who have been in, been involved for a long time, it just doesn't seem that controversial. Devil's always in the details and when you look at the federal government, the, you know, the decision makers there skew quite a bit older. And so they just come from a different kind of era, different mindset when it comes to this plant and change takes time. And that older generation, I think, is still caught up in trying to keep cannabis as a, you know, re-enslavement tool. I mean, from my perspective, I think this has been used to just continue to put, I mean, we look at the states around the country that have a legal medical or adult use program, and you still have large numbers of people who are brown and black being arrested for having cannabis. Because if you, this municipality right here doesn't have the same regulations as this one, you cross over one street, next time you're busted. And it's really insane that we are living this way right now. What do you think? I mean, put your crystal ball on, because you've been doing this from a legal standpoint, working in multi-states, working with operators all over the country. Put your crystal ball on. What do you what do you think this looks like federally next year, two years, three years, four years, five? Let me give a disclaimer that I am an eternal optimist and then <laughs> answer your question. <laughs> so I I am still bullish on something happening on the federal level. And that could be as minimal as a rescheduling to schedule three. And I don't want to say that's minimal because that's that in and of itself is a big deal and a lot would flow from that um, and any kind of movement on any subject matter at the federal level right now is a big deal, right? But my, my, my biggest concern with that, well, let me not stop you, just, I'm going to jump in as you talk with this. My concern about this is that why would we make it Schedule 3 and allow an entire industry of people who have hated cannabis for 20 years to now control it? You play, make a schedule three, that means the FDA gets involved. And, oh my God, come please. No, now. I mean, I feel like you know, I'm in the back of a movie theater screaming at a bad movie here. Uh, you know, I, I would prefer, from my perspective, is, is this should be treated as, you know, any other nutraceutical. Um, even though we do know that this is a nutraceutical that does have, you know, euphoric effect, but I think there's a way to regulate that with age and those kinds of things and, and age limits and those things and restrictions on where and how to sell. But to turn this over to a bunch of people who have lied, who have literally stood on a step and said, we don't think cannabis works, even though they know it works. You know, I, 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 I'm more afraid of that than I am keeping it, making it schedule two. 
Yeah. I mean, look, there the I myself have not sat down and kind of worked through all the unintended consequences that a schedule three rescheduling could bring. Mm -hmm. I know that there that is probably a long list of unintended mm -hmm. consequences because that is also the story of government. It's you fight for the change, you get a little bit of change, and then it creates all these other problems. Right. So, I mean, to your point, personally, I think a descheduling would be the better choice, the, the best outcome. But going back to who our decision makers are and the the processes in which we are stuck in the federal gov federal government right now, I think rescheduling might be the might be the thing that's coming. And and then we'll all have to scramble and figure out how to deal with that. But I don't see, you know, full descheduling or full legalization and decriminalization, which is what is needed coming anytime soon. Jimmy, my, and, and I, I agree with you. I don't think it's coming anytime soon, but I have a feeling that's what's going to happen is as we look at the rest of the world and we start to see what's going on in the rest of the world, places like Colombia, Chile, Ecuador, uh, Peru, you know, Isle of Man, Germany, all over the world. You know, in the last five years, I think it's been well over 230 countries have pulled out of the UN treaty that stopped the, you know, importation and, and exportation of hemp and cannabis products around the world. So the rest of the world is jumping on this and recognizing that, you know what, we're on to something here because first off, we don't have to spend all this money on high-priced pharmaceuticals coming out of the United States. We can cut back on some of the pharmaceuticals we're using in our own land. So screw those guys in America. Let's just go ahead and make it legal. You got China, you know, who knows what the real number is. I've heard numbers as big as 3 million acres of property being used right now to grow hemp products that they are hoping to start sneaking in countries around the world like ours. I don't want to ever touch a hemp product out of, out of China. Are you kidding me? But Places like Colombia that already has well over a million acres dedicated to hemp. South Africa, Zimbabwe, was it the Lesotho that has well over a million acres of property dedicated to hemp growth? I mean, America's going to find itself in the back row here pretty quickly. I could not agree with you more. I like it feels as though we already are. You know, we're already way behind, I think, on making the, the seismic shifts in policy and in laws that would need to happen. And it's unfortunate because we could be great at this, right? Like we've got California, we've got uh, Florida, we've got New York, we've got a lot yeah. of kind of anchors, Colorado, right? We've got Kentucky. People don't recognize, see, people don't even understand. Really? Kentucky, I think, just passed the legalization of, of medical cannabis. Kentucky, everybody, you know, credits... Humboldt County in Northern California is being, you know, the, the biggest providers of cannabis in America. That's not true. If you go back to the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, there was more cannabis coming out of Kentucky than it was anybody, anyplace else in the country. That's where the whole cornbread mafia came from. People don't recognize the biggest bust in cannabis happened in Kentucky, not in Northern California. Look at that. I'm learning today too. Oh, so I'm sorry. Uh, here, the book, book, go pick up the book Cornbread Mafia. I pick will. Up, pick it up and do a, do a real quick skim on it. It'll blow your mind. I can remember, you know, I'm considerably older than you, but I mean, back in the early 70s, I remember, you know, we, there used to be weed coming in days back when we were calling it weed, but cannabis coming in from, you know, everybody said, well, that's that Mexican weed. That wasn't Mexican weed. 
Whenever you got cannabis wrapped in newspapers that were U.S. newspapers, it was coming out of Kentucky. I love that. I know. Kentucky. That's great. Kentucky, but now, now, and and take a look at what happened. You got the um, the senator uh, from Kentucky. Sorry, my mind just slipped. Um, Anyway, who who literally fought for the hemp bill? That's the reason why the hemp bill was pushed so hard. Because Kentucky knows that the second that was passed, they're going to go back to providing a large amount of the cannabis coming in. And a lot of the stuff that comes illicitly or illegally across this country, everybody thinks it's coming in from California or from Nevada. It's coming from Kentucky, folks. I'm telling you, there's a lot of weed being grown down in that part of the country. That's a hot tip for the New York regulators, guys. <laughs> Look for a product from Kentucky on these illicit shelves. Absolutely. And, you know, and then that, that also, now, again, I just, I'm, I'm involved with a, a company called Botanical Sciences, which got one of only two completely vertical licenses and the two biggest licenses in the state of Georgia. Um, and, you know, they just launched and it's a medical program there. And I'll tell you something about really kind of on the crazy side is that, you know, uh, Georgia doesn't allow for any smokable or vapable products. Mm. They also don't even allow for what they consider edible products. However, they allow tinctures, tablets, and lozenges. Doesn't that go in the mouth? That's called edible. But anyway, they've kind of figured out a way to get around that. And um, they'll have salves. But their biggest problem down there is the fact that here is a licensed dispensary. Here is a licensed independent pharmacy. But right across the street is a bodega that's selling hemp-based products with Delta 8, Delta 9, you know, Delta 10, THCA, and just without any any oversight whatsoever. So now we crystal ball, <laughs> excuse me, what you think may happen in the next couple of years, and that's a tough one. That's a tough question to ask anybody. But do you think that the medical program in New York will stay in place? I do. So I think I think the medical program is here to stay. I'm optimistic we'll continue to see it get improved and expanded uh, and maintained, but we'll see. We'll see see what happens when adult use rolls out. Okay, and now one more. How about what do you think is going to happen? You know, there's a recent lawsuit was just filed uh, <coughs> about you know allowing interstate commerce between legal cannabis states. How do you think New York will participate in that, and will it affect you? What do you, what do you think about? If interstate <coughs> happens here in the U.S., that's going to be that's going to be a big deal for New York for sure. New York's trying to protect its market from that that happening inevitably by setting up this two tier market. So you've got supply side, you've got retail side. And generally speaking, you can't be vertically integrated. There's a few exceptions to that here in New York. But the reason the regulator is doing that is that they're hoping when interstate commerce does happen, they've protected those tiers and those licenses and that retail tier will survive here in New York. I'm not so sure that that's going to play out that way. Um, I think a lot of people have had a chance to make investments uh, in surrounding states around New York and when those walls fall, I think the licenses in New York we're gonna are gonna have some challenges and some catch It's gonna be tough. I think you know when you look at <laughs> excuse me, New York, you got Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, 
Pennsylvania touching. You know, you're going to have – I mean, I, I personally feel as if every state should have some sort of reciprocity program. If I have a card in one state, I should be able to purchase product in another state. And I think states should just let that happen. Now, do I think that just because I have a card in one state, do I think that we should allow products to cross state lines? That's going to be the, the battleground. That's part of the reason for the Marijuana Tax Act to begin with. Okay, thank you so much for being a part of the show today. Really, really, really want you to know that whenever you have any more information or anything you want to share something, you always have a place here on Let's Be Blunt. We appreciate the fact that you've been so informative, especially with what's going on in the state of New York. And I want to thank you for being a part of the show today. And I want to thank you for tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.